The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Episode 2A, The Book of Job. So, last time in our episode on the Hebrew Bible, we introduced a handful of stories and a smattering of themes. We really didn't have time to to cover much more than that, so I focused on the themes that really resonate with me. That is, me and my capacity as a lowly human who struggles. Uh, the world, the cosmos, God, life, whatever it is that's out there, asks an awful lot of us whoever, that's my view anyway, whoever or whatever it is that has set this up has a lot to answer for. The answer is that there's nothing, that it's just a great big void. That's fine. But if there's something, something higher, something greater, whether that's God or gods or a force or a power, it's something we're supposed to worship, whatever it is, has to take these questions on. It's not enough to ignore the questions. The questions are all I have. <laughs> I'm just a, a bundle of questions. That's what I admire about the Old Testament. It's a marvelous collection of stories, just as as literature, it belongs in our history, if, if for no other reason than it's this amazing collection of stories. And Gilgamesh was pretty good on this. Uh, but it was nothing really like the Old Testament. Gilgamesh, Gil, sorry, Gilgamesh took on a few of the hard questions. What does it mean to be a hero? And why can't we live forever? And how do we humans deal with that knowledge that we're not going to? But the Old Testament takes on questions like, who made us? Who made the world? Why is the world the way it is? We don't have to believe in order to admire the power of that. I also talked about God as a strange character, full of love, but exhibiting a, a mercurial temperament, an unbecoming indifference, I would say a, an ungodly neediness, <laughs> the pun intended, all this violence and vanity. This is our deity? That's who we worship blindly? Why? The contradictions are there. The universe can be cruel. God can't escape that. That it can appear to us cruel. Does the religion itself deal with those contradictions? And here's where I think the Old Testament gets high marks. And I would say it's probably the reason why the Old Testament has survived as long as it has and why it's been as successful as it has, not only as a work of literature, but as a foundation of several religions, because it takes these questions on directly. And last time I didn't have time for the best example of this, but I want to focus on that today, the book of Job. It's all there in the book of Job. For me, it reaches a peak, a literary peak. From a literary perspective, it's probably the single most impressive set of lines in the Old Testament. It's not the final book. If I were arranging the Bible, the Old Testament, I might have put that one last because it's such a, 
a summation, a culmination of what the rest of the Bible is, is saying. Instead, it appears as the first of what are called the wisdom books. Maybe that works even better. Sort of sets out the, the parameters of what the Bible is and is not going to tell us. So Job, what happens in the book of Job? Job is introduced to us as a perfect and upright man who fears God, avoids evil, and yet he's visited by a series of calamities. His family's killed, his wealth is destroyed. Now, why does this happen? First, we see a dialogue with God and Satan, where Satan is saying, well, sure, it's easy for you to be worshipped if you give people everything. And God says, you know what? Let's try it with Job. Let's try something else with Job. I'll inflict these punishments on him for arbitrary reasons, not because he's done anything wrong, but just to demonstrate that I can be worshipped, that I'm not bribing my subjects. Now, we talked before that God may have overreacted a bit in his punishment of Eve and Adam. <laughs> condemned all of humanity for an act that uh, any human would have done. We also talked about maybe he overreacted in his response to Noah. But with Job, we see something different. Job did nothing wrong. That's the whole point of Job. And yet he gets hammered too. <laughs> and Job, this is the brilliance of Job. He starts asking the questions that we ask or that we would ask if we were Job. Actually, that we ask, that we ask today. Why? If God is omnipotent, if God is loving, if God is good, and if we do everything God asks, we follow all of his rules, why must we still suffer? What logic compels this? What kind of world has God set up where this is the end result? And God, and those are good questions, God answers in a long, magnificent speech, who are you to ask me this? What knowledge do you have? Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I took a world of darkness and invented light? You have no standing to ask me these questions. This is not your job to question me. You come back when <laughs> you haven't done one millionth of the things I've done. I'm God, you idiot. God. That's a paraphrase. Really, though, reading Job's appeal to God and God's response is, for me, a spine-tingling moment. It's two intellects sparring at the peak of their powers. And by Job here, I mean human beings. He's a, a stand-in for us, a representative of us at our most intellectually honest and curious. That's what's so excellent about Job, is he's intellectually honest. He refuses to take the instructions of the Old Testament, the Word of God, or the world of God, we could say. He refuses to take those seriously without testing the reasons for it. Devotion. Why? Blind faith. Why? Last time I gave the metaphor of a parent telling his child not to play with an electrical socket because you can't explain electricity and the physical effects of an electrical shock to a two-year-old. 
So instead, if your two-year-old can't stay away, you just say something like, oh, there's monsters inside there, and they're going to come out if you stick a fork inside. They'll bite your arm off, (laughs) or whatever you do. Maybe you just appeal to your own authority. Don't you see me driving a car, making your food? You might not say this, but this is what you're thinking, right? You, the grown-up, the person in charge, you want to say that to the two-year-old. Don't you see me buying things at a store? Don't you see me talking on the phone and working at a job? Don't you remember that it was I who brought you home from the hospital? I was there when you did not exist. And then I created you and I was there when you did exist. And I know everything that's happened to you in between. I know what you know and I know what you don't. And I know more about the world than you do. So don't come to me with your wants and tell me that you really, 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 really just want to stick a fork in an electrical socket. I'm telling you now, me, the person who gave you life, who cares about you more than anyone on this planet ever will or ever could, me, the person in your world who knows a million times more than you do about a million different things, I am telling you, Do not touch that thing like that one more time. Just listen to me. That should be enough because now I'm busy doing other things like getting your lunch at the same time that I am cleaning up this bowl of goldfish crackers that you ground into powder into the carpet. I can't watch you every second of every day. So just listen to me because that's who I am and that's who you are. Job is the child who has grown up. The child who says, thanks, Dad, but I need to know more. I don't believe in monsters in the wall, and I'm not just going to accept your authority for why I shouldn't do what I want to do. I need to know two things. First, why can't I do this? And second, who are you to tell me what to do? And this this is the point where our example falls apart a little bit, because Job is not asking to put his hand in an electrical socket. And parents are claiming wisdom, but not omniscience, and certainly not omnipotence. Job has led an exemplary life. He's asking why he owes loyalty or devotion or anything at all, really, to God when God's omnipotence has not prevented pain and suffering. Babies die. Innocent bystanders are killed. Floods rain down on the wicked, but also on the pious, or the people who have done nothing. Why? It's a question for children to parents and parishioners to priests and lowly humans to divine beings. It may be the question. We can ask it of our Creator. We can ask it of the cosmos. We can ask it of ourselves. Job asks it again and again. He gets an answer. God responds in a majestic symphony of a speech, citing the many things he's done and knows. If you haven't read the Bible in a while, take a look at the book of Job. The speeches there are excellent. The questions and the thundering responses. Now, there's a secret here, which we as readers know, but Job does not. 
that God has selected Job to demonstrate to Satan that a human being can retain faith in God's justice, even in spite of horrible suffering. The test is whether an intellectually rigorous man can live with that paradox. God cites the many things he's done and knows. He doesn't explain electricity. The question is, is that enough? God is appealing to authority. Now, ordinarily, we cite that as a fallacy, a poor argument to appeal to authority rather than explain things rationally. And maybe that's the case. Maybe that's how you'll view the book of Job. But I think you can also see this in another way. God doesn't explain electricity. He doesn't have to. He's explaining that he invented electricity. He's explaining his role and ours. He's asked to explain electricity, and he instead explains something about the universe. In the story, that explanation is enough. Job accepts it. He lives within the riddle without the riddle being answered. Humans will know that there are unknowable things. That's our destiny. God does not supply fake answers or answers we will not or cannot understand. Is that sufficient? For us, for a religion, some say no, others say yes, some say it has to be. In any case, it's an underrated part of the history of literature. The book of Job is a quiet masterpiece. That's literature's power and its pleasure to wrestle with the hardest questions. You can dig deep into the human condition. You won't get much deeper than the book of Job. That's it for this bonus episode of the History of Literature. Join us at historyofliterature.com and jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. And you can now subscribe to the History of Literature on iTunes and Stitcher, which would help us if you would rank us or leave a review. That would really help us out. You could also send us an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. Tell us what you enjoyed and what we missed. And we also have a Facebook page now. We're really... We are, we are really, uh, we are really rolling. Check us out on Facebook. You can find all this, more about this at jackwilson.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time when we're going to be looking at the blind bard of ancient Greece. Some say he's the greatest poet of all time, Homer. Thank you for listening. <laughs>